Welcome to the Teaching Classroom 21, a podcast by The Ever Learner. I'm James, your host. Join me and my guests every week as we discuss, debate and explore the features of a world-class classroom in the 21st century. Welcome to the Teacher in Classroom 21 podcast. I'm your host, James Sims, and joining me on location in deepest greener Surrey is Ian Hyland. Ian is the executive head teacher of Thomas Cope School and Sixth Form College, CEO of Surrey Heath MAT, science teacher specialising in physics, and importantly to me, Ian is my ex-line manager and a colleague who was greatly supportive to me at a very, very difficult period of my life, always balancing candidness and professionalism with personal support. Ian is also someone who has continued to support me outside of a direct professional status, having discussed many intriguing educational topics and developments in recent years. Today, I'm proud to call Ian a friend and a confidant, and I deeply welcome Ian to the show. Ian, how are you? I'm all right, James. Welcome. Thank you for that. It was lovely. So, personal question first, Ian. Let's let's familiarise our listeners with you a little bit. This is what I want to ask you. Have you been to any good concerts recently? And who is playing regularly on that incredible sound system of yours? Um, have I been to any good concerts yet recently? Yes, um, I went to see Queen and Adam Lambert about 10 days ago at the O2, um, which is a throwback. Obviously, Adam Lambert isn't Freddie, but you know, still playing the music and respect Brian and Roger for keep going. Um, who's on that playlist of mine? Um, probably influenced by um, a trip I made last week to uh, my favourite hi-fi shop in Guildford. Listened to a seriously £20,000 streamer, um, was deeply upset that they didn't have any Tori Amos. So Tori Amos is probably what I'm listening to at the moment, which is very mellow compared to the stuff you normally heard me listen to, James. It is. It's quite a big part of your life, it's fair to say, the music. Yeah, yeah. I'm a frustrated musician, and um, I've decided I'm going to try and do something about that over the coming time. So instead of just listening, I'll try and learn something so uh, and as a young person you were playing and, and you stopped I mean what, what was that no um, never played at all the nearest I got to playing was flicking through the um, I think it was Littlewoods catalogue my mum used to have um, <laughs> index I think they called it yeah uh, no it was Littlewoods in those days James. <laughs> um, or Grattan um, <laughs> and they had uh, toys in there and I went beyond the toys where they had some guitars so uh, yeah uh, splashing out on stuff like that was never an option in our household um, but I did used to listen to lots of music. I saw lots of bands when I was young. Um, and, you know, we used to sit and watch Top of the Pops when it came on. So, yeah. So, yeah, more of a listener than a performer at the moment. But I got I quite into the techie stuff for a while. I see. And you, and you say at the moment you're flirting with a bit of playing and a bit of performing? Uh, or is that, is that secretive? I, I, I set myself a goal, which was I, I was going to try and learn something. So, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm working on that. Well, we haven't sh- started yet, but about to. We, we, shall, we shall stay tuned in, if you'll pardon yeah. the pun. Sounds really interesting. Good for you. So, Ian, executive health head teacher, tell us about your role. What is it day-to-day? What's the experience? Um, it's changed quite a lot from when I was appointed to the role, because at the time, um, this school was working with another local school, and the role was to work across both sites. Um, and as that developed and that school made progress and the staff there did great things, uh, it moved on from that towards developing Thomas Cope, first of all, become an academy because we were a bit late in converting to an academy. 
and then to working with other schools to try and encourage them to join the group. Uh, and we've got to the position now where we've made a decision at a strategic level that actually we're going to join another trust mm. as opposed to try and grow our own, which is either brave or interesting, depending on which way you so look at it. What does that then mean for, for Surrey Heath Academy? I mean, how does that then develop? Effectively, we are a standalone academy at present with Surrey Heath Education Trust. Mm. What will happen is we will shut down Surrey Heath Education Trust and we are joining the Prospect Trust, which has one other academy in it at the moment, which is the Sixth Form College at Farnborough. Mm. So we will be part of the same group that the Sixth Form College is in and we think that's got some really exciting possibilities. Mm. In terms of my job, what I've been doing recently and what I will be doing in the future, that will involve some quite significant change, um, but it's still operating working with children, um, just a, a wider range of ages, and helping them accelerate their progress, really. Good stuff. One of the, I mean, we've sat in, sat in many meetings together, Ian, which I, I reflect on with both uh, uh, joy and, and sort of uh, sometimes numbness as well in those <laughs> Wednesday afternoons. One, one of the key lines I remember you discussing in SLT meetings, Ian, and frequently reinforcing was that of the hidden curriculum. What do you mean by that, and why is that so important? I think one of the things that I've always seen as important is what, what do children learn in an unintentional way. I was very struck by the way that very young children, you know, under two, um, learn about the environment around them, how they learn more by listening than by being told. And so I think the behaviours that people have, whether that's students or adults around them, that model what you want them to do, I think are really important. So in terms of the wider hidden curriculum, I think that the respect people have for each other the way in which um, children speak to each other, the way in which adults speak to each other, and of course the way in which adults speak with children, I think are really important. So to give you an example, if I'm walking around the school, I want to look at somebody's book, I have the habit of saying, do you mind if I have a look at your book? Mm. Whereas other colleagues I've walked around with will often take the book and won't ask. Mm. Well, as far as I'm concerned, the book is the child's, and therefore if I want to have a look at it and comment on it, I have the right to do that, but actually I want them to participate in that rather than being told. Mm. So the hidden curriculum has that sort of aspect to it. And then there's a more traditional side, which is the, the things that are not subjects on the timetable. The, the fact that we do work with languages and internationalism, the fact that the EU flag is on that flagpole outside my window at the moment, um, is about messages that we're sending to young people about what we see as the importance of learning. I mean, and, and I want to be clear, I'm not asking this question specific to Tomlin's coach, so yeah. I don't want to put you on the spot about yeah. that. Do, do, do you feel across our system we are well inclined towards these kinds of behaviours and developing this hidden curriculum, these types of skills, or do you think we do it in spite of the system? Is the is system producing those things, or are individual teachers producing them within the system? I think one of the beauties of teaching, and one of the reasons why people should go into teaching is about the ability to influence and to um, change the system from within. I think the notion that you come in and you follow a set curriculum and you do what you're told and you deliver certain outcomes that get measured mm. is, is not a, it's not a recruiter for anybody. Um, so I think teachers do encourage students to do the things they think are the right things. And I think in the very best schools and the best lessons, that will be going on all the time. I think teachers will be developing what they see as that side of the curriculum. I think the... The interesting thing for me is that there are situations, or you hear of situations, because I'm not in them to know, you hear of situations where people become what I would call quite instrumental about things. Mm -hmm. They've got a very fixed outcome that's going to work towards it. And I've yet to meet a 14-year-old who's motivated by the fact they'll get a job when they're whatever age. Mm -hmm. They don't think that far ahead. 
So I think you have to encourage and develop behaviours and expectations about their learning that the child will take away with them because that's what they've, they've learnt. You know, it is the school way, it is the education yeah. way. You, is there a rebellious streak in you, Ian? Or would you describe it as? Would you describe yourself as a change manager, for example? I mean, to use that cliche term, do, do, do you feel that as part of your character, or is it circ, or is it circumstantial? Does it depend on the role that you're performing at the particular time? Yeah, I think that I'll come back to the change manager because I think that probably is very accurate. I think the rebelliousness is probably not. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a problem with breaking rules, which is that if we're working in a system that encourages children to follow certain rules then to model breaking rules just because I don't like them seems to me to be a little bit like tantrums. Mm -hmm. Um, And I know there are some times when protest is necessary, but that has to be a considered reaction rather than um, a knee-jerk. In terms of change manager, um, if you don't understand change and you don't model change and you don't think about how change works, you're going to get it wrong. Mm -hmm. And I would never for a minute claim to get it right all the time, just mucked something up with my heads of faculty. But... As long as you acknowledge that and they learn that they're making mistakes, but most of the time you get it right, that's fine. I mean, a thing you probably heard me say was that there's nothing wrong with taking risks. The thing about risks is not making the same mistake twice. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I, I would probably see myself more as a change manager mm. rather than uh, a risk taker. I see. Interesting. And again, you, you triggered something in my mind there. Actually, from a colleague you, you may be spending some time with in, in the future, given your, your Academy Trust developments. Yeah. He used to say to me quite frequently, James, a six out of ten day is a good day. Except six, enjoy the eights and the nines, of course, and don't suffer too much over the twos and the threes. But six out of ten is is not too bad. So, look, I mean, if I was to ask you a direct question, then, Ian, what distinguishes the taught curriculum from the hidden curriculum? Is it a name? Is it simply saying physics and then a, a behavioural skill? I mean, how do you distinguish them, or can you not actually distinguish? Are they one and this? Do they sit on top of one another? I think there's been some argument lately that we've um, de-skilled a whole generation of teachers because if you think about uh, things like the numeracy and literacy strategies where there was a a central group of government-led experts who said this is how you deliver it, the three-part lesson will be it. There's a whole generation that either have experienced that as learners or have taught that model. Or Or both. Indeed. And indeed iterations of it that have come forward and have have not really thought about what the taught curriculum should be. So therefore they see it as a bunch of subjects in their silos rather than a set of skills that might be transferable. So I would like to think that the taught curriculum um, was about more than just subjects and labels and the examinations that go with them. Um, Yeah, we've all struggled with the transferable skills. As you said, I'm a physicist by background. So graphs how physicists use graphs. Clearly it's taught very well in maths, it's used in physics and geography. That's a good example of something that's, that's not a particularly complicated skill, but it's a tool that you need to use across the piece. So why would we have different mechanisms for doing that in maths and in geography and in physics? It's just nonsense. So it'd be good to see more connections like that, but actually what I see is lots of people driven by what the end product is. The end product is a GCSE grade, therefore what's the specification that goes to it, therefore what they've been taught beforehand that feeds into it. And many teachers I see are constrained by that because they've got, on the flip side, they've got people like me saying, well, what are the results like for that class? Of course. So feeding into the hidden curriculum, um, there are many things that are woven into the curriculum that is the the formal taught curriculum. Um, But maybe sometimes that's not as conscious as it ought to be. Maybe it's what people have brought to it. 
can we make it too conscious? Can we go into, for example, models like a growth mindset week where it's kind of discreet and separate, or we can go into a skills week? Is 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 that is that too conscious if we go to that level and try and introduce these this this behavioural set in that way? I think there's a real value in having a flag. Mm. Um, and to give you an example, one of the flags that largely we've adopted, and it's not radical at all, it just came across us at the right time. Um, we've almost entirely banished, I stood up and said, I will not allow the use of the word ability. Um, so we don't talk about ability. Anymore. I may start clapping here. <laughs> yeah, about time, James. About time we got there. Um, we talk about prioritainment, um, and we talk about things that children have shown us they've been able to do. Mm. Um, but in a similar way, so, so staff talk about prioritainment now. Um, in a similar way, we've stopped using our target setting mechanism, Fisher Family Trust. It's a great system, yeah. but there's an argument that says that you build in the underachievement that other students have previously shown it's perhaps better to set an expectation based on their prior attainment and then celebrate when they go beyond that rather than setting a lower target and being pleased when they meet it. Um, so I think there's a need for that and I made a conscious decision I was going to stand up and say we're not using the word ability. Mm -hmm. um, so I think there's things like that are really good. Is it worth going a whole hog and going further than that? It's difficult because when you hear teachers talk about we don't have enough time to develop the skills and so on we'd like to do, there's got to be a real outcome if you're going to give a long period of time. So I would rather see something that was more woven into the fabric of the place um, and we'd start to talk about things that are more important. So to give you a different use, um, a prevalent word amongst many young people today is the word gay. That gets talked about a lot. And do, do you mean gay as in, uh, do you mean gay as, as, as they use it to, 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 uh, to make something negative? That thing is gay as in it's bad, do you mean, in that, in that sense? They in my experience yeah. more often than not we'll see it as negative but not always because when I've challenged them about it they often say well actually I mean that's a really good thing okay. about it so that's the fluidity in which they use yeah. the language is just um, beyond me frankly <laughs> um, but we make a point of challenging that because the word is something they are using and if we just say you will not mm. then actually all they do is do it when we're not around whereas yeah. if we challenge the thinking that goes behind it mm. Um, and so I had some really interesting conversations with young people about that. But that's part of the hidden curriculum. That's part of their wider learning. You know, you're saying that. And I usually use the phrase, you've just, you've just used a word that's really caught my attention. I'm not sure I'm really happy with it. This isn't obviously in a classroom. This is you know, lunchtime and you wander around talking to them. So I think there is something to be said sometimes having a flag that says, actually, this is something we want to be talking about. Yeah. Um, but yeah, a whole week doing growth mindset doesn't sit well with me. Mm, I, I have similar views. Uh, may I ask, and I, I'm aware you probably can't talk about specific um, cases, but when, when, you, when you stood up to use your words and talked about the, the abolishing of the word ability, what, what reaction, general, what general reaction did you get? I guess it was quite mixed, but... Um, well, there's, you know, James, as, um, as you know, I'm six foot six, and uh, <laughs> there is a, a you, certain... You've many times intimidated me, if I, I'm honest. I've obviously done that accidentally sorry um there is a a certain sense you know and the, the job title and the rest of it there's a certain sense of well the boss is saying this therefore that's what we're going to do what tends to happen is people will talk about it afterwards so th there's not you know because it's an argument actually nobody's going to take on because you can't win what is pleasing is when you see that used and you hear people using it with young people yeah. um and when it becomes part of routine practice and you know don't get me wrong and i've heard you talk about this 
none of us is claiming to be a saint about this. You know, we'll we'll all make mistakes and all the rest of it. All we can really do is to say, actually, what we're trying to do is to be a bit better than we were yesterday. Yeah, it's about being conscious. You mentioned the word earlier. It's about being conscious of it, isn't it? And Absolutely. Think, thinking it through and, and considering the impact of it. Absolutely. And that's all we're trying to do with young people. Mm. Um, they hear things and they talk to their friends and they absorb things. What they need to do is to be mentally challenging themselves to think, actually, that's not how I wish to continue to speak. And we all come with prejudices. We can't help. Some of them are societal. Some of them are environment. Um, but we all have them. The, the problem for me is when one's ignorant of them and doesn't try and do anything about it. Yeah. You know, we're not claiming to be at some nirvana state. What we're trying to do is just to be a bit better. Mm. Um, and that's what learning is, isn't it? It's about being a bit better than we were. One of the things that's fascinating for me as well, listening to that, is uh, I was very fortunate uh, this time last week actually to, uh, to sit down with uh, uh, Professor Paul Kirshner, who's very distinguished in the area of feedback, and he would talk about epistemic feedback, which is offering something to a young person, or indeed a colleague, which is, have you considered the following in your, which typically in your learning, in your research, in your work, and what does that do to the process and the outcome that the student used. And I think what's interesting about what you said is you're effectively using the same methodology to encourage a reflection, in this case, on how have I arrived at that linguistic nomenclature. Yeah. And I think, I think that's an interesting link, because we tend to think about feedback in purely in the formal learning cycle. And actually, what you're talking about is lit feedback within the hidden... Absolutely. Hidden curriculum. Very, very interesting. Let's, uh, let's change tack here. I seem to be reading on almost a daily basis, Ian, headlines about the teacher supply crisis. Yep. From your perspective, what do you see as the issue? I think the first thing to say is that we need to recognise that um, it is a, a significant variation regionally. Um, I had benefit recently of talking to um, a colleague who... Um, has the job title of Head of Teacher um, Sufficiency uh, for the government. And um, I was talking to her, and she had some very astute views on where we were. But what she was quite right to point out is that there's a significant variability in terms of the um, regional pressure on that. So the South East, which obviously always thinks itself hard done by, really we do have significant pressures. So you know, we've got all the external advantages in terms of recruitment of staff here um, but it's not unusual to have one or two people for any post uh, at best uh, on some occasions obviously we advertise so the notion of shortlisting has gone out the window that's interesting why is that the case um, I, I accept that there is um, a whole series of things out in the outside environment that discourages people from attending um, you know, we hear lots about teacher workload and there are issues to do with that we hear lots about teacher pay and there are issues to do with that. In this area, it's about accommodation. Um, it's about whether or not I will ever be able to afford a house. Um, you know, my son teaches, he teaches in Sheffield. He stayed in Sheffield for a number of reasons, but one of which was the fact that next March, two and a half years into his teaching career, he can buy a house. Um, in Hampshire, in Surrey, in Kent, that would be an unrealistic expectation. So there will be people who make those sort of choices. Um, there's also the other side of it, which is that staff in schools like us are keen to get people in and therefore there are very rapid promotion opportunities and sometimes I would say perhaps people are, look at their friends and think, well, they've just got promoted and I must get promoted and maybe there's a little more learning of their expertise they need to go through, a little bit more craft that's um, causing some potential issues down the line. I see. Um, but in, as to what's the main thing that, that would change that, 
I think that's that's a magic bullet. I think maybe we need to move away from thinking you have to um, get level three qualifications, you have to get a degree, then you have to train. I think maybe we need to look at, like the primaries often do, putting the, the, the degree and the training together. Mm. Um, so you don't do one then the other. I find it really interesting as well, Ian, because I think what, what I heard there was I think I think you'll be on the headline, aren't you? You're thinking about, and of course you're you're very much in the conversation of why do we have one or two on non who's who's applying or someone who didn't attend. You might get some feedback yep. from that individual, for example. But I find that a very pragmatic approach as well. Like we have to <clears throat> look at the whole range of issues and house prices is a real phenomenon. I mean, British culture is very much wedded to its home ownership model. Yes, and therefore in an area of elevated or even what I say inflated house prices, that's going to have a direct impact for those earning slightly above average income. Yes, and yeah, I realise that we're talking about people who have got degrees and, and therefore earn salaries above what and debt, of course, and and debt, yeah. of course. Um, and that 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 was a straightforward thing you could do. You could do something about training teachers with debt, uh, student debt, and doing a tie-in deal on that. That would work really well. But yeah, there are other people who earn much less than some teachers earn, um, and I understand that this is a, a, a select group. But if you want really good professionals to teach the future of young people, you've got to have a system that gets them into it. Um, and so yes, I think that is an issue. We, we're not going to lose our um, you must own, you, you could rent type of model. That's not something we're being encouraged to do. Um, and so looking to the future, I would say that was probably the greatest pressure that we're going to have and um, you know, that, that's that's not helped by well yeah, the grammar school program that's been on television recently. Yeah, that, that sends messages to others about what the education system's like. That's just insane. If you're trying to encourage people to come to something because you can make a good difference to young people, you can improve society, you can help things go forward, you can give something back. All those things that motivated me and you to come into the work. Absolutely, yeah. um, it just that doesn't doesn't look good on television yeah. what they're more interested in is you know the child who's upset on the playground and taking it out by hitting something it, it's interesting the narratives that do and don't appear in the media um with it, it, we all know the educational story on results day we all yep. know the envelope scene one of the others that we, we always seem to be presented with sort of binary choices in the educational frame uh, this is this is very much looking at the macro level but the british model or the chinese model for example i sometimes think well there's a million in between. There's mm. all kinds of variations. Sometimes I feel the media doesn't necessarily reflect the breadth of the conversation that we need to have as well as it could, which, by the way, is one of the reasons we do these kinds of shows, so yeah. we can elevate that kind of conversation. Let's go to the really practical levels then. So when you, let's say you, you put a job out and it's for a teacher of subject X, whether it's drama or history or whatever. Greek is the example oh, I normally Greek. use. Okay. Got doesn't it. offend anybody. Okay, fine. <laughs> Agreed. Well, funnily enough, the gentleman I record, Mr. Macarena, I recorded with him on Friday. His episode's out soon. He's a teacher of classics, um, specifically of Latin and classics. Okay. He teaches Greek as well. So when that, when that happens, you, you get one teacher and, and or, or, or two in. What, what's the practical response? I mean, how, how do you manage that situation? Do you then look to work through agencies? Do you, do you, do you how, how do you change that field or can you not? Okay, well, if you have a field of two, um, you only need to appoint one person. Yeah. And if one person's really good, it doesn't matter whether it's, it's two or one or whatever. So 
that's the first thing is that we will have a clear view about the standard we're prepared to accept of a uh, incoming colleague so assuming they've met that because if they don't we will we will go down an alternative route so so let's let's assume we haven't found one what would we do next yes we use agencies um i've done some things like um with a colleague we went to glasgow we um advertised in glasgow um, to see if some colleagues were interested in coming and living near London and having a chance to work because I was led to believe that Scottish schools, you have to wait a long time to get promotion. Mm. And that was reasonably successful at the time. Um, we've done the same with taking colleagues from um, Southern Ireland. Um, so we use agencies of that sort of nature. Um, we go through some particular agencies who we feel have um, their finger on the local pulse. But the reality is that in the longer term, what we've got to do is we've got to work on making sure that we boost teacher recruitment. And whether that ends up as being people who train and work with us or go into the system and work elsewhere, um, in an absolute sense, actually, I don't mind because if we can encourage more people into profession. So really, we need to be looking at teacher training. And you know, my history has some stuff with teacher training in the past. And I think that's where we go. But the immediate pragmatic thing is, if you don't find people for the normal routes, you go through agencies. Two things. First of all, let's just return to the idea of combining qualifying with gaining experience. I mean, how how do you how do you see that? I mean, what, what do you have a vision of that, and what what might that look like? I think that there's um, a real opportunity to take people who have finished A levels, or about to finish A levels, or other level three qualifications, who would like to um, teach, um, but don't see themselves as incurring 40, 50,000 pounds worth of tuition fees plus living costs um, on top of that before they get to it. So I think there's an opportunity to do something there in terms of maybe talking about apprenticeships, um, in terms of training that would be working alongside colleagues in school over maybe a more extended period. I was visiting a colleague, um, a sixth form college in the south of Surrey uh, on Friday and they've got a two-year training program where their trainees, which are 16 plus, uh, teachers only, um, they work alongside other colleagues over a two-year program, um, they study at the same time and they're qualified at the end of it, but they don't come out with a significant debt. Um, I think that's got a lot to go for it. Yeah. Um, the, the notion that one goes away to university, gains a straight degree and then puts a PGC on top of it, I think is is going to struggle, uh, and that's coming from someone who was deeply embedded in that system. You know, in the past, it's it's not working in this area. People want to train near where they live, so they don't incur additional costs. I think that's really interesting. I mean, again, it, it, it sounds it initially sounds like a challenging idea. The idea of going from uh, sixth form into, if if I may be slightly provocative, into teacher practice of some kind or upskilling at least. But it's the same people who would go through the additional route. So again, if, if the hidden and the actual subject curriculum was robust enough, then mm. that presumably would be a functional process. I wonder if there's um, assumptive-based barriers that would ultimately get in the way of that. We have this kind of model of where a teacher comes from, and I wonder mm. if those things would get in the way. When well, there, there are a couple of things to say about that. Please. I think, first of all, is the, the notion that someone who happens to be 18 is not intellectually, emotionally, or anything else at a stage where they're ready to, to help other people learn, um, is to ignore all the work that goes on in a vast range of areas. I completely agree. Yeah, Guides, for example. Mm -hmm. you know, look at the work that some of the people do there. 
Um, tremendous examples. If I look at the leaders we've got within our own school, if I look at our sports prefects, if I look at the people who lead Rock Challenge, you know, they're great leaders. They're very articulate. They're very clear thinking. So I think the age thing is something we get hung up about. So, you know, I've made my point there apart that one. I think the second thing I would say about it is that um, the way in which um, our profession is governed is partly by regulation, but it's also partly by the expectations of the profession itself. So I know that if there was to be some sort of undergraduate apprenticeship, a lot of the professional associations would have a real go about that um, because they want only qualified teachers. Now, the fact that these people were trained to become qualified teachers to me would be a good thing. Um, but as you know, James, we've got colleagues here working on a number of our pro programs, particularly our vocational programs, who are very good at helping young people learn, but they don't have qualified teacher status. Absolutely. Yeah. We help them gain it if they want it, but they don't have to have it to work with us. Mm -hmm. yeah, we've got a really good construction course, um, and the guy that leads that is now a qualified teacher, but he's also a builder for part of the week. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. And I, I want to, again, my second comment there, it, I, I don't know whether this is a question or really a compliment here. One, one of the things that I feel when I'm sitting here with you is that education goes very, very deep with you. I mean, I think you can say that about a lot of educators, but this is, this is clearly not just a job for you. You, you, you think about it as, I don't want to put words into your mouth and you, you may express it better than I will, but it, it, it's, it's a vocation, it's a, it's a movement, it's a philosophy, it's an ideology. Is that, is that fair to say? Yeah, it, it is, James. Um, we had our uh, new staff who were starting September in school last week and what I said to them was, I can genuinely say I've never had a Monday morning when I didn't want to come to work. Good for you. Um, and I'm lucky, I appreciate that, I understand that. But the reason for telling them that is that A, I want them to understand that they can get a tremendous amount out of the profession and B, I want to counteract some of the negativity that we hear about the place. So yeah, education does run very deep. I was one of the old school people who, who did university and so on. Um, I did do six months with the RAF on placement. I mentioned that because of the aeroplanes going overhead, James. Yeah, we may get that shortly. We may get that, yeah. Um, but but reality was I always wanted to work in a school. Um, and as many people who get to my sort of job role probably think, in the end, I thought, I've got influence over 30 children for 50 minutes or an hour. I'd actually like to influence more than that. And if enough people over time felt I had something to suggest that would be useful to them, then great. Um, but yeah, it does run very deep. But then if I go back in time to my own schooling, you look at some of the things I saw and I did then, um, it would be very hard not to get quite cross about it if you were any sort of social animal, really. Mm. Uh, it's, it's interesting again you remind me of a few things Jill Berry said to us on uh, a few weeks back now but we, we, we recorded a show with um, with Jill Berry called Head Teacher the Best Job in School she took yep. that same idea yep. how to Im you know the opportunity to influence so many people in such a wide variety of areas and it, it's clearly a similar case with you Academisation Ian as, yep. as a process well established but, but what's the future of academies Ian? I think it's worth just um, waving a flag to think about where this started, um, I was interviewed for um, one of the £35 million rebuild academies back in the day. I didn't get the job. I was up against somebody who was very experienced. Probably wasn't ruthless enough. But that £35 million rebuild academy was on the site of a school that had had 20 years of failure. Um, it was quite normal for police cars to be there. And... The, the Labour government at the time said, actually, we're going to do something different. We've tried everything. We're going to try throwing lots of money at it. We're going to build something they're proud of. 
and that school is not the best school in the country but is significantly better now and I think the academy movement at that stage made some significant difference to some people in some difficult, difficult areas. In terms of where it's got to now I think we are into um, an interesting phase because the, um, the multi-academy trusts, the MATs, are tending now to become of two orders. There's probably eight to ten um, who have a significant number of academies within them. Um, they get consulted as a special group. Uh, they influence policy probably more than even ministers do now um, because they make decisions on the ground. The minister's levers are they can change the regulations for exams and they can change the money flow. They can't even get legislation through to make anything different. So um, the people who really move it are the people who are running groups of schools. Then you've got another group of academies who are probably in chains that are somewhere around 8 to 10, that sort of size. And they are either going to have to get bigger in order to be self-sustaining or they're going to have to go into other groups in order to educationally and financially survive. So over a period of time, they will either be closer working between the multi-academy trusts or they will actually start to do effectively merging. And although we're not merging with the Prospect Trust, we are joining the Prospect Trust, A, because we think they've got a lot of real great strength, but also because we think that over time, our ability to influence on a wider field is greater. And I suspect that's what we'll start to see. The danger, and I've voiced this you know, on occasions to others, is are we just doing that educational thing which is the wheel that takes 20 years to go round and we're reinventing local authorities. So we will give up certain autonomies that we fought very hard to get as a school and then as an academy uh, in order to be part of a greater thing. The difference I think perhaps is that we are relatively local and that was our criteria. You know, we had to be able to travel during a lunchtime. Um, so an academy group that is within that sort of commuting range works very well for us. The work that some of the big chains have done, and I've heard their leaders speak of it, and they've done some tremendous things, is very targeted. You know, they're working at schools that are in very difficult situations that were offset grade fours and had serial failure. They've gone in with a model and they've imposed that and they've done things to it. Great. But not everybody has to be like that. Um, it fits what they were trying to do. So where are academies going? I suspect we'll see some consolidation of groups of academies um, and also a shake out of the finances of it because the cost of running a central team has to come from somewhere yeah. um, and some of those costs can be quite large. I see. It's, it's, it's really fascinating to get your get your take on that. I mean, I think what I take out of that is I, I can see clearly, let's let's take your example, I can see clearly why a young person arriving at a really good school we're sitting in today, they join in year seven, they progress through, they succeed, they leave at 16, or at least they leave the physical environment of yep. the school, they stay within the trust. They move on to a successful sixth form college and there's some kind of shared philosophy, structure, maybe even systems to some degree. I, I see that, but what I think is really interesting is your view of influencing. It's almost like the managing down and managing up process. And you, you see the importance of academies as, as being able to influence in both directions. Yep, yep. Um, there was a, a, a unit set up called the Innovation Unit. Uh, Mike Gibbons, I think, was leading it. And um, many, many, many years ago, and I remember him telling me that uh, most of the, the um, flexibility schools went to ask for, they already had the authority for. Oh, that's fascinating. Um, and, and, and it was just that we are innately conservative and don't want to do things that make us perhaps take too big a risk, um, but perhaps you know, fall afoul of some regulation. Um, so yeah, I think the academy moving up 
um, is really interesting because in the end, who determines education policy? Yeah. We can't complain about education ministers who are on a short-term cycle, uh, with a couple of notable exceptions who did a, a good period of time, who are trying to set policy because that's what, that's what politics is. They listen to their constituents and they fire in the direction they want, but they're not there for 15 years trying to make it work. That's not a criticism, that's just the reality. Therefore, it needs to be the system leadership argument, which is that schools and academies influence things. And that's okay because um, we're constrained by certain things. So the exam regulations and so on, we have to work within that framework. But sometimes you just have to take a bit of a flyer on something. You have to do something that you think, actually, you know, this is going to be really good. Um, and you need to try something that maybe you've seen elsewhere or you've heard about, or actually you, you, your, your staff come forward and say, we'd really like to have a go at this, that, that can move things on. The difficulty is balancing that with the expectations of the young people that they're going to have some currency that's going to get them somewhere in the direction they want to go, yeah. i.e. grades, and also their families who feel that for them. They're, they see their responsibility as make sure they go to a, quote, good school where they get good grades so they can get a good job. And it's very hard sometimes to take risks when you see those sort of things at risk. Mm, interesting. I think we can all applaud the possibility of educators and school bell joining school us. School bell, yeah. It, it, it brings back memories. Um, I think we can all celebrate the possibility or even the likelihood of, of people from the educational background having more influence at the top of the policy cycle. I, I really value that and I think sometimes the general conversation around academies can touch on the cynical at times so I really I really appreciate that that, that balanced perspective so in our communication leading up to today Ian, you made a very interesting statement relating to what uh, what you wanted to, dis to discuss and you said recognizing what is good and how to change what isn't yet I want to ask you a straight question here what did you mean by that because I don't think anything is bad mm. Um, we're on a journey in, in order to make things that are not yet great a bit better. Um, you, you can't sit and work with a child who doesn't understand oh, Bernoulli's theorem um, and say, actually, Jeremy's never going to get it. It's just not there. Um, you can, your responsibility as the person who's in charge of the learning at that spot is to find a way to help that child get over whatever it is that's in the way. And there'll be all sorts of stuff that gets in the way. Their, their mental state when they've rather come to it, their expectation of what they can do, the I can't do it argument. Mm. And we wouldn't take that from ourselves. And I suppose the, the analogy I use a lot is driving lessons because 17 year olds all understand about driving lessons. There is no way that someone would say, do you know what, I can't ma master this balancing accelerating clutch. I'm gonna keep having lessons until I can get it or someone's gonna show me a different way of doing it. I'm going to keep going because I want it enough. And maybe that's where I, I see it. It's not yet right, okay? So let's make it a bit better, because if we don't, no one else is going to. Um, and that's, we're back to growth mindset and stuff, aren't we? And, really? and the word ability as well. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not a default, it's not yeah. a preset. No. So, I mean, so if you were in a classroom, I was, I was a teacher in a classroom here, and in that situation, I'm glad you chose, I would have said Bernoulli, how did you say it? Bernoulli. Is that correct? I'm I have the, no idea. I, I, I would say Bernoulli, I'm glad you chose something I actually understand, that's uh. a relief. Um, but so, so okay, I'm working with that young person and I choose to give a differentiated task sheet which effectively caps them from understanding the relationship between air, speed, air velocity and air pressure. Very good, James. Thank you very much. And it's inverse, of course. Anyway, um, how, how, would you, how would you, I don't mean to put you in the formal observational 
from work. But how would you view my behaviour there as the teacher if if I give that limited uh, task sheet to that student who I don't think is ever going to get there? Yeah, I, I, I suppose it depends upon where the thinking is for the teacher because the other thing you've got to balance this against is the child needs to experience success. Um, and so it's no good exposing them to a, a concept they're not yet ready for, that word again, yet. Um, so I would expect there to be some differentiated activity that gets the child to that and I would see the role of the teacher as the expert to say actually you know, I've seen some other ways of doing this that's easier or something that's more basic um, because that's what leads to the light bulb moments which is what everyone, you know, we're back to the teacher's motivation again, says what really motivates them. So if the teacher is given a capped activity then what I'd expect to see is the teacher making sure that if and when the child gets to the cap of that activity they then have the extension activity because children can be intimidated by something that appears beyond too far beyond their reach. It's the argument isn't it you need to struggle in order to learn so they need to struggle but if you set something at the level that they've, they've always done then you'll just get the same outcome. So yeah if the teacher is skilled and can do that and has the time to do that then that's really good but again back to your six out of ten day they're not going to do that to everybody in the class on every day and they shouldn't beat themselves up because they can't what they should do is be pleased for the ones that they can and then aim to do another one or another one the next time and importantly have the educational ideology which i think you've just summarized really really nicely that i i, I love the word yet I think I think it's so powerful. Again, it reminds me of a conversation I had recently with a gentleman called Stuart Owen, who who developed his own children into outrageous uh, motor skill very fine motor skill development at very very young ages and he gave me an example of I asked him how, how many failures or how many misses did the children have in order for you to film that hit and he said to me well none or one because as soon as they couldn't hit the one bubble which I'd blown out of a bubble gun or something I took it back to four or five and then they struck the racket out. It allowed them to experience success yeah. and then took it back down to striking the one bubble with the badminton racket, not to assume they'd only ever be able to swing at five, for example. Ian, we, we always ask uh, colleagues this on these, on these shows, so I'm going to ask you as we conclude today. I'd like you to project forward if, if you would be so kind and I'd, I'd like you to think and perhaps describe to us something that in five years' time you are determined to be doing exactly the same as you're doing it today or right now. And could you also share with us one thing that in five years' time you're determined to be doing differently, either personally or professionally? Um, well, five years is a long time at my age, James. It really is. You're very young. <laughs> you're too kind. Um, professionally, five years' time, I'll be doing what I was doing when I was 22. Mm. Uh, which is working within the shared expectations of whichever environment I'm in and reinforcing those. And that doesn't mean to say I'm banging on about rules. What it does mean to say is that when I walk past a child whose top button is undone, if that's something that the environment, that in education institution sees as an important thing, then I will be expecting to pick the child up on that. And I won't be being horrible about it. I'll just tap my collar and smile at them. And that will work because I'll have been doing it the day before and the day before and the day before and it will become the expectation that is the norm. Now whether that's about their uniform or how they behave or how they speak to each other or how they work in class, that expectation is what every good school I've ever seen has had rooted at its core. So I think that will be the same. Um, what will be different, um, I think it's highly likely that I'll fail in this, but I'd like to see the model where there are 
28, 30 children sat facing a teacher having instruction at the same broad pace, I'd like to see that eroded. Um, you know, some of the work that people like yourself are doing in terms of student paced learning, um, whether that be students who are 14 or students of 54, I think is a really important thing to be able to find some mechanisms to make that happen. I remember you telling me, um, why can't we have a language classroom in which they're all learning different languages? And I think there are things about that that can seem rather um, trendy to people who are innately conservative, second time I've said that, um, but actually if the needs of the children or the older learners that we're working with need that different pace, which they do, then we've got to find a way of making that work. It just doesn't fit very well with efficiency and class sizes and you know, rectangular rooms and all that sort of thing. Yeah, the, the classroom pod is something that's going to potentially be challenged. I mean, I must, I must invite you over to our demonstration classroom at this point here, and I hope we manage to do that soon. It's down the road from where we yeah. are today. We have to get past airshow traffic if we were going to do it today, for example, but otherwise, um, otherwise we do it. And two things before we finish here. First, firstly, I want to reference something I said before. I want to thank you on, on record and personally looking in your eye for the support you gave to me. Thank you. It meant a lot to me. It's we don't need to James. go any deeper than that, but you're a yeah. good man. And I genuinely appreciate that we can continue the conversation, this relationship that I really enjoy. Thank you. Um, and secondly, please keep in touch because I can really feel it goes to the heart with you, mm. that it means something to you. And it's a conversation that I think is not just a great reminder, but the, but the detail and the clarity which you've shared today, I think is potent for a lot of people. So I think that's really important. And I also think you may have, to some degree, demystified the idea of an executive head teacher. I wonder, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm only trying to put myself in the mind of the listener. I think it's something that, I think it's a, a position that sometimes can feel aloof or distant. And I think you've expressed it really, really well today. So I want to thank you for that too. I think there's something about that, James, which I probably ought to say, which is that um, you've been kind enough to use the word executive head teacher because you're talking about a head teacher. And one of the criticisms some people who work with me have said is that actually I am too hands-on with what the children are. I suspect you may have had conversations with others who maybe have a little more executive than head teacher. And that's just a reflection of their role. And it could have been where I was, but it's not. You know, you're getting me on a time and a stage at which actually I'm able to balance the two. One is be strategic and one is still see children progress on a day-to-day -day basis. And I think that's perhaps a little rarer with some of my colleagues than you might imagine. That's interesting. And I think, again, it reflects on perhaps the greatest leadership behaviour of all, which is adaptability and flexibility. Yeah. Ian Highland, thank you so much for today. We really thank you, James. Appreciate it.